Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast, where we dive deeper into every horror book and movie for a closer look at their bone-chilling anatomy. <laughs> this, this past month has been gay all the way. Pride Month is a time dedicated to remembering the Stonewall Riots, which was the first Pride March, appreciating how far our equality and equity has come, and fighting for our futures. Queer representation in cinema and horror has a long history, which I highlighted in my first episode of the month. Queer, black, brown, and other people of color are only just getting fair representation in the media, though. My black queer horror episode discussed this and more. If you didn't get the chance to listen to my Pride Month episodes, don't worry, those episodes are live and waiting for you. Trust me, if you don't already know much about queer media and horror, you may want to give it a listen before we delve any deeper into this week's movie. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Your Horror Podcast for the latest horror content and podcast updates, such as what to expect for every new episode. And uh, while Pride Month ends this week, the gay movies and the gay talks do not end because gay is every day on this podcast. Um, so next month we talk about Sleepaway Camp, Friday the 13th, they slash them, and I'm also covering a like summer camp horror book. So super excited for that. Make sure you tune in and you follow me to make sure you know which episodes are coming out on which weeks. And before we dive any deeper into this week's episode, we got to sort this out, okay? What are we streaming, reading, and watching? Uh, I, okay, listen, I am not so much of a, an animated movie person, animated anything person. I'll watch the stuff that I grew up with, you know, I love, I love Courage the Cowardly Dog show. That was, that was my show when I was a kid. I love the Powerpuff Girls. I will watch anything. Oh, like the, um, the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. <gasps> Can we get a round of applause for that? Because that was such a good show. But, like, I'll watch all of those. But anything new coming out, any new animated movies and shows that come out, I don't really, uh, I never get the urge to watch them. It's never like, oh my god, I have to see that. All of this is to say that I watched Elemental, uh, the new Pixar movie, and it was so good. Like, oh my gosh. I don't think there was a point where I wanted to cry. No, there was a point where I wanted to cry. I didn't cry because producing tears is just a little difficult for me, but like, I felt the feeling of wanting to cry. It was such a sweet story, and the representation in that movie was insane. Like, you had an immigrant story going, well, you had multiple immigrant stories going on. You had the, the stories of gentrification going on, um, of like just wealth inequality, racial inequality. You had queer representation, like, wow, wow. And like different spiritual representations as well. It was, it was a really good story. Uh, the animation was absolutely insane too. It was so cool to see, especially 
just like with all of the different elements but particularly fire and water seeing how they're different how different their lives are and also just their um their like visual design and how like it was animated with the fire girl I don't even remember what her name is but with the fire girl and like her eyeliner what was it really eyeliner was it just like how the fire was I don't know but I loved it I loved every moment of it I also watched of course the blackening I watched blackening again uh and it was so fun (laughs) I love that movie I really do I didn't rate it very okay no I think I rated it a three and a half stars on Letterboxd my initial watch and then when I watched it again I rated it a four stars and a lot of it has to do with the audience like I'm not gonna lie like the first time I watched it I was not in a good crowd like it the energy was just off you know um and so then the second time I watched it was on Juneteenth you got a theater full of black people celebrating Juneteenth and it was a good everybody was howling and like that's exactly how it should have been the, the entire time so it was an experience that I love it felt so similar to like going to see Get Out for the first time um because I went to see Get Out in a theater full of of it was a theater full of a lot of people but majority black people and there's just something about watching a black movie with a theater full of black people and like you just you watch it and you feel for the characters in a different way and like it's just a it's a collective experience that ah wow a memory what else am I watching so many shows are coming out y'all I I can't keep up uh, Black Mirror, I'm on the very last episode of that, which is, I think it's Demon 79, I want to say. I don't know. I don't know how I feel. It, it, like, so the one before that, Maisie Day, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but, like, it was good, but unlike other Black Mirror episodes that we've seen, um, and it definitely stood out from the rest, there, there didn't seem to be this, like, big plot twist exactly and I think that's just because where I'm so familiar with like horror plot lines and those distinct moments within those plot lines I think I just saw the ending coming or like the big twist I saw it coming and but it was still cool and I've been craving for a story like that for a while and I finally got it the Demon 79 one has not grasped grasped my attention so far. I don't know. Like, I, I like the way that it's shot. I like the way it's edited. But the narrative could really go any way. And I'm just like, I'm not following 100% yet. Uh, so far, I think my favorite one was... I liked Maisie... Okay, no, I liked Maisie Day because of the time in which it took place we don't get like I think we're now entering the time in cinema and tv where the nostalgic era is no longer the 80s and 90s or even 70s it's now like y2k cruel summer their 
like timeline is set in Y2K. And then Maisie Day was also set, I want to say, like, what, 2005, 2006? Um, and it was, you know, I love to see that because that's what's most familiar with me. I'm also, I most of my books that I write, or, like, most of the stories that I write to be turned into books are set in Y2K. Not, like, 2000, but it's, like, 2002, 2005, uh, just because it's a distinctive time for me. So yeah, and so I like that. Beyond the Sea was really good. The ending, the thing with that one is the ending was expected, but because it took so long to get there, it was just building this this suspense and tension. And like, you almost didn't want the end to come because you knew it was going to be catastrophic. And I liked that about it. And that's why I think it's okay for endings to be for endings to be predictable as long as they're executed appropriately. That's really all that I'm watching watching. The Sex and the City spinoff and just like that came out. I started watching that because love that show. I've I've barely watched any movies to be honest. I've just been such a busy, busy person this month. It's Pride Month, y'all. Uh, and then reading, I, I started The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager. Uh, I like it so far. I was reading Clown in the Cornfield before that, but I had to put it down because The Last Time I Lied is the book that I have prepared to review next month. And it's about a girl who went to a summer camp for one summer, but after a very tragic, traumatic event, she never went back because the camp closed down and she has a bunch of guilt. And then she's invited back to the camp because the camp is reopening and we all know, we all know what's going to happen. Things are going to unravel, things are going to be revealed and people are going to, bodies are going to start dropping again, you know? Uh, and so I'm excited to, to delve deeper into it. I think I'm only like, I don't know, 15% into the book. So I still have a long way to go, but I will read it faster than I read Plain Bad Heroines because (laughs) this book is not 1100 pages. Uh, I have a personal problem with that book, but that's okay. So the movie this week was originally scheduled for earlier in the month, but summer is just a busy busy time i had to move things around and it may be better that we're closing out june with it instead i am talking about a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge if you are familiar with queer horror queer cinema you know how significant this movie has was and has been um for queer audiences and representation It released on November 1st of 1985, and it was directed by Jack Shoulder, written by David Choskin, and I don't really ever highlight the writers of the movies. Not, they're important, don't get me wrong, but like, it's, it's very significant to know that name as we talk about this, because he plays a very important role Um, and a lot of queer horror fans have it out for David Choskin. The runtime for this film is one hour and 27 minutes, because this was before the time of experimental and elevated horror, where they felt like 
horror movies should be almost three hours long sometimes. And you know what? No, I do not agree. It's starring Mark Patton as Jesse Walsh, Kim Myers as Lisa, and Robert Russler as Ron Grady. So if you have not seen this movie before, um, it follows Jesse Walsh's family who recently moved into Nancy Thompson's old house from Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. The father keeps the history of the house a secret, but Jesse eventually meets Freddy Krueger for himself and learns of the history for himself. Only this time, Freddy isn't just looking to torment teens, he's looking to take over the body of one, Jesse to be exact. The original plan for the second Nightmare on Elm Street was a Rosemary's Baby kind of plot with Freddy taking over the fetus in which the protagonist's mother was pregnant with. The dream concept from the first film was less relevant in this concept that was brought to New Line Cinema. They did pass on it, but they did pick it back up for Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which I probably have seen some time in my life, but it was not too memorable. And maybe it's good that it's not. Uh, Wes Craven was offered the opportunity to direct it like his original Nightmare on Elm Street, but he turned it down due to the absurdity within the script. And it is absurd, I will say. But is it, to Wes Craven, is it absurd or is it just gay? You know, that's a, that's a question to sit on. We almost didn't even get Robert England back for the sequel due to budgeting costs. Uh, they thought taking on similar tactics like the rubber mask of Michael Myers would be cost effective, but they changed their minds after realizing that England's portrayal of Freddy was part of the film's appeal. So currently, uh, streaming platforms, production companies, and creatives are all at war because streaming companies and production companies really just want to push out content as fast as they can for as cheap as they can whereas like cr the creatives behind those projects are not getting their fair pay and treatment and respect and this goes to show that this feud has been going on forever like with the introduction of newer technology ai specifically Streaming companies are going to start taking advantage of that and writers are not going to have as many jobs as they used to. Like, while that is the conversation of today, streaming companies have always been looking for ways to make a movie for cheaper and yet still have a big cash out on it. I'm glad that they realized that going with a rubber mask was not a good idea because if you saw that second halloween that third and that fourth that fourth one his mask oh my god that was embarrassing i always remember enjoying this film as a kid i loved how much more graphic it seemed to be and just seeing a different storyline because at least as a kid i wasn't attached to nancy thompson i think part of that is because like that was the very first movie where as like jamie lee curtis the way that Halloween is set up it follows the timeline is also significant in terms of our attachment to Jamie Lee Curtis like it wasn't you have the first movie and then the second movie it's like a year after that happened and then you see where she's at now no like it carried on within this the same night of the Michael Myers attacks so yeah like as as a kid I wasn't I wasn't like oh my gosh Nancy Thompson needs to come back I miss Nancy Thompson no because I was also a kid so I didn't recognize 
that. But I watched it more than the original, and I used to associate the sequel with the entire franchise. While the, the phone tongue is most memorable to the general public, it's the pool house scene that I remembered the most. Every time I'd be like, oh, I want to watch Nightmare on Elm Street, that's the one I was talking about. This, this is the one I'm talking about. I, I, would, I would never talk about the actual original Nightmare on Elm Street, although I do appreciate that bed scene, and I appreciate uh the crop tops i will not say i appreciate johnny depp i do appreciate his portrayal of that character in that time but i do not appreciate johnny depp this movie is perceived as queer for a number of reasons the gym teacher likes to wear leather and go to gay bars it's written in the script as a transvestite club and the snm scene is a representation of kink culture and queer history this was the first time seeing a gay bar or gay representation on screen for many queer audiences, including me. These are smaller moments that verify the large contexts that I want to focus on in this podcast episode. And if you haven't seen this movie, um, there will be spoilers. So if you want to watch it and you don't want things to be spoiled, now would be the time to click off just to be safe. Uh, but if you don't care for it to be spoiled, or if you've already seen it, or if you have no plans on watching it, you just came here to hear me talk, thanks so much. I appreciate your support. I'm so glad to have you here today. Yeah, and you know, if you do choose to leave, you can always come back. Your seat will be warm, popcorn will be popped, nightlight will be on, and we'll be waiting for you. The Queerness of Jesse Walsh. Critics and audiences were quick to pick up on the homoerotic subtexts of this film, even if Chaskin wasn't prepared to acknowledge it. Remember Chaskin, the writer of the movie. Patton, as well as other queer fans of this film, don't believe it's subtext, but explicit exposition of queerness. And when I tell you, yes, it is explicit. Like, there is no, there's no subtext, and I can't believe... David Chaskin really tried to gaslight everybody into thinking that this was not a gay movie. But I'm about to tell you why. <laughs> why it is. So the character in Mark's portrayal of Jesse Walsh. David Chaskin took to placing blame on Mark Patton for the perception of Jesse's character and the homoeroticism of the film. He says the narrative was supposed to play as homophobic instead of homoerotic, but quote, choices like casting pushed the subtext to a high level and stripped away whatever subtlety there may have been, unquote. Which, okay, why were you writing a homophobic film in the first place? You know what I'm saying? Why would you, why would you admit to writing a homophobic film and then also knowing that the lead of that film was a closeted gay man? Like, you're digging yourself in a hole, bro. <sighs> Patton wasn't out to the public yet, but the filmmakers knew that he was queer. Having played a queer role previously to his role in Nightmare on Elm Street, he feared being typecasted. 
While I don't believe the casting solely resulted in this, I do think it played a role in different ways along with the way Jesse was written. Before we talk more about the movie and the context, we gotta lay down some history foundation, right? So in this time in history, uh, horror in video stores rose in the 80s, which caused more of a demand for it. This is understood to be an emotional response to the growing conservatism t during the Reagan administration. By the time Nightmare on Elm Street 2 hit theaters, the AIDS epidemic was sweeping the gay community. Because of this, Freddy's invasion of Jesse's body can be analyzed as an analogy for gay men infected with AIDS. It's similar to the way Body Snatchers 1993 is suspected to be an allegory for the AIDS paranoia. If Jesse Walsh were to have been written as a woman, right? What would he, what would he be or she be? What would Jesse be? A final girl. Um, and Jesse is also just a very like gender, gender neutral name at that. So it could have easily been a woman and she could have easily been a final girl. But no, instead, we got Mark Patton playing Jesse, he, him, and now we have a Scream King and a final boy. Mark Patton's character was the equivalent to the Scream Queens that came before. This was the first Scream King. The cast and production recognized the shift that they were bringing to the slasher genre early on, which is also another reason as to why, like, why do you think you were writing a homophobic movie when you were writing your very first Scream King, your very first final boy? Hello? Like, you're flipping the gender, you're flipping the gender roles already. There was this contrast created with Jesse, where final girls usually take on more masculine characteristics. Jesse, as a final boy, takes to more feminine ones and so like his scream is very high-pitched he is very sensitive just like a lot softer compared to like the other male character in this movie ron grady and speaking of ron jesse's relationship with him is just another is just another reason as to why this movie is gay the way i see it jesse is caught in a love triangle between lisa and ron from the time we're introduced to both characters to the end of the film, their connection to Jesse sort of grows at a similar pace. Introducing Lisa as the love interest before Ron adheres to the usual horror trope. However, when you catch on to the sensitivity that Ron has for Jesse, it subverts what you think you know about the movie, Jesse, and that usual horror trope. When we first meet Ron, the boys' baseball team slash gym class is scrimmaging. Ron gives Jesse a hard time about not paying attention, and Jesse gets back at him. In response, Ron pulls Jesse's pants down, which then leads to a fight that also resembles a very aggressive makeout session. Now, as they're dealing with their consequence of fighting, Ron is asking personal questions about Jesse's relationship with Lisa. But if Ron had been a woman, hear me out, it would be perceived as that woman asking from a place of jealousy or attraction. Jesse gets defensive thinking Ron has a problem with him, despite Ron just simply asking invasive questions calmly. Uh, Jesse gets really defensive and like, like aggressive. He's like, do you have a problem with me, man? Meanwhile, Ron is just like, so what? 
are you and Lisa a thing now? Like, that's all it is. It felt like the same kind of aggression that men can sometimes have when they react to something homophobically. It's like a guy will be like, oh, like, those pants look really great on you. And then the guy will be like, what is that supposed to mean? What? Don't be gay. You know, like, it's just, you. can you not get a compliment? Can you not be asked questions by another man? Ron shows the similar kind of compassion to Jesse that Lisa does, though it's in a more masculine, like, two dudes kind of way. He gives Jesse the space to talk about his feelings. As they're sitting in the lunchroom, he offers to hang out with Jesse to get his mind off of the things uh, that are stressing Jesse out. When Lisa's friend tries to talk to Ron, he barely even acknowledges her. He just keeps his attention on Jesse. And then Ron gets emotional when Jesse tells him to shut up. Ron's like, fine, whatever. And then he just, like, leaves. And it was just so similar to the way, like, a man reacts in a relationship with a woman. That's like, um, they're fighting and the guy just like, oh my gosh, whatever, fine. And, like, just, you know, throws a temper tantrum. Uh, during Jesse's makeout session with Lisa, Freddie tries to take over. This leads Jesse to stop abruptly, leave Lisa behind without a word, and climb through Ron's window for help. It's in this scene that Ron is killed by Freddie, being the second person and man Freddie has killed, and Jesse has a complete meltdown over it. His self-perception is now deteriorated, and he sees himself as a monster. And when he goes to Ron's house and he climbs through his window, he's like, I'm in trouble. I need to stay here. And it's like, bro, just say you want to be boyfriends with him. Like, that's fine. Just say you want to have a little sleepover. You don't need to blame it on Freddie. Like, just admit it. You want to be boyfriends. And Ron's response to this is, Lisa's waiting for you in the cabana, but you want to sleep with me? Ooh, wait. I don't think he said anything about sleeping with you, Ron. He just said he needed to stay in your room. You have a chair in the corner. That's not sleeping with you. But if you wanted to sleep with you, that's fine. Just admit it. Don't hide. Just open open that closet door a little bit, you know? <laughs> now, if you remember from uh, my previous episode, the queer horror episode, um, seeing oneself as a monster can equate to the experience of queerness and feeling other. The scene after Jesse kills Grady is important to understanding the queer subtext. Jesse is terrified and is demonstrating confusion about his identity. The things he does and feel are foreign to him because of Freddie, quote unquote, being inside of him. As Freddie comes into this conversation, Robert England comes into this conversation too. And I really, I love the way I love the way that England, um, like, approached this film specifically and the, like, energy and effort that he gave to it. So while the character of Jesse and the actor that portrays him lends a hand to the queer representation of this film, Robert England played a role as well. England, upon reading the script, understood these so-called, quote, subtexts from the jump and so the decisions he made in his performance were guided with this in mind robert england asked mark if he could make their first scene together homoerotic and so this this scene particular was it's not it's not really their first scene together because their first scene is technically the opening scene but 
the their first scene after that together is when you know is when freddie's like I, you know like we could work together i could be i could be the brain you could be the body like that part so england thought that he could make this scene a little bit more homoerotic if he were to caress jesse's face but he didn't stop there Robert England wanted to place one of his knife fingers in Jesse's mouth. Oh my gosh, can y'all imagine the riots that would have occurred? Oh my gosh, the people walking out of the theaters? Oh, people would have been mad, but the gays would have been thriving. And I really, I really do think we were robbed. I do. The production team stopped this because they knew it would rock the worlds of every gay kid watching. Regardless, England saw this exchange in particular as a parallel to Beauty and the Beast, Jesse being the beauty and Freddie being the beast. Freddie represents Jesse's sexuality. You you catch on to this the more that you watch the movie. And when Freddie comes to Jesse with the I need you, we have special work to do. We have the you have the body, I have the brain. Jesse runs away from it and cue the sexual repression. Most of the time, when Freddy appears on screen, it's in a sexual manner or situation. When Lisa and Jesse are reading through Nancy's diary entries, particularly the one about Freddy, they're read in a sexual manner until Jesse gets to the steel claws. And even as Jesse is attempting to explore his sexuality with Lisa, Freddy is always going to interrupt because you know what? You know what? If you are in denial, if you're trying to force yourself to be straight and you're in denial, it it's never going to work. I don't think you can ever truly force yourself to be straight if you are gay. And Freddie is just reminding you of that. And later on in the film, after Jesse has killed Ron and is having his existential crisis, Lisa states that Freddie is, quote, living off of your fear. You have to fight him, unquote. This is when the movie stops being a camp queer movie and just homophobic. Many queer fans of the film like to forget the last 30 minutes of the movie for this reason exactly. And yeah, I think it's stupid. The last 30 minutes are just... The movie was building up to be a... It could have been a really good movie of like... of You know, identity discovery and and sexuality discovery and everything like that. But it just had to take that turn, you know? And Chaskin. Chaskin, man. I absolutely love this movie. In preparation for this episode, I watched Scream Queen, A Nightmare. I, It's A Nightmare on My... Um, No, Might Nightmare on Elm Street. Maybe that's something different. Either way, there's a Shudder documentary about Mark Patton and uh, his experience with Nightmare on Elm Street and the way that it just ultimately tanked his career moving forward and it's a really great documentary i suggest if you're into queer horror if you're looking to get more like if you're looking to get more knowledge on it or whatever the case is like that was such a great documentary that's how i got a lot of the information i did particularly um, about david chaskin and mark Patton and all of that yeah i really i hope to get like more books like the the book that I have on black horror I want to get some on queer horror I already have one saved in my in my cart right now you know it came from the closet 
yeah, I've been eyeing that for a while. I'm moving into my likes now. That was all kind of like the the breakdown of of the queerness of Nightmare on Elm Street. So some of the things I liked about this movie, I liked the choice of starting and ending on the same scenario. When the movie opens up, Jesse is on the school bus. He's getting ridiculed by those like girls or whatever. And you think it's a normal day. And then it proves to not be a normal day whenever they drive off of the road and you learn that Freddy Krueger is the one who's driving the school bus. Um, By the time you get to the end, you can understand it to be a fear that Jesse may have of going to hell. Yeah, he may have defeated Freddy, but Freddy was only one part of him. His repression is still with him, and as long as he keeps ignoring it, he will continue to have these same fears, aka this reoccurring dream of being on a school bus and then driving straight to hell. <laughs> I feel like I said that like like a pastor or like some sort like a southern a southern baptist woman. You're go- you're going to hell. You're going to hell for your homo for your homosexuality. Sorry, I just had to. Um you're not really. You're not going to hell, I promise. The household dynamic and the way it's significant without taking up the entire narrative is another thing that I really liked. It creates a well-balanced chaos and you get, like, the household isn't super significant to the story. It's kind of like a background character. The glimpses of the household, what's going on in the household, and just like, the problems within they're so small and like you really do have to pay attention to string them all together but like it all just builds up Uh, the problem with the ac in the house is introduced early on but it just grows as jesse's problem with freddie does and i almost wondered if this was to represent the family's uncomfortability or tension with their son like his dad is just so quick to blame jesse for the birds attacking each other killing each other and then exploding how how would jesse have had any call like how was that jesse's fault what had jesse what could have what could jesse have done to cause these birds to attack each other and then combust in midair i don't think it's possible but he just like right off the bat has conflict with his son the dynamic between Jesse's mom and himself, uh, while it gets rocky, the mom is more nurturing and suggesting psychiatry and like just trying to find like helpful things for Jesse to overcome whatever he's currently going through. But his dad gets more angry and more disciplinary towards Jesse's changing behaviors. So while his mom was like, oh, I really think, like, we should see a specialist. I think I found one, like, I think I found a psychiatrist that could really help. And Jesse's dad is like, no, he doesn't need a a psychiatrist. He just needs to be disciplined. He just needs to, he's just a a stupid teenager who da-da-da-da-da. Like, bro, will you just take a look at your son real quick, please? And this might actually be one of my favorite Nightmare on Elm Streets. I mean, I said it earlier in the episode, just in terms of, like, I always associated this with being the first one for me. And maybe it's because this was the first Nightmare on Elm Street that I saw. 
that I have memory of seeing. I didn't see them in order. Um, but I always, you know, like, I just always love this movie. I always remember everything about this movie. And the graphics are reasonably good for the time. Like, the part where Freddy busts out of Jesse's body is crazy. And watching them do that, watching them achieve that with special effects and prosthetics was insane. I absolutely loved that. And they do a good job of balancing horror and absurdity, which Freddy being a dreamwalker allows for absurdity because our dreams never make sense anyways. And one thing that's, that I always remember, I'll never forget, I always hate, <laughs> is those dogs. So yeah, I hate the last 30 minutes of the movie, but those dogs in the last 30 minutes of the movie are despicable. But like, it works because it's a dream. Like, it's not real and you can't make sense of it. You know, it's, I feel like, I feel like Freddy being a night, uh, not a night walker, what? Freddy being a dream walker and being able to attack people in their dreams and make people question their reality. Like, it works in the same way that screams like meta horror um, storylines work. Um, Because it's like, yeah, they do these stereotypical horror things, but like, it works because it's meta. It works because that is what the whole franchise is based off of. And same with Freddy Krueger. It's like, it's, it's kind of like a scapegoat, I guess you could say. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be absurd because your dreams never make sense. In terms of dislikes, um, I only have two. One I've already said. The last 30 minutes were terrible. <laughs> and it's just like, I really wanted... I th- like I think there are some situations where it's like the main character does not have to profess their love for the said love interest. You know, like the main character can go on loving themselves, not loving anybody. But no, for whatever reason, the main character always has to have a love interest. And I am tired. I'm tired of seeing it. You know, so like in the last 30 minutes, Jesse is caught between Freddy and Lisa. Lisa's trying to help Jesse um, from, you know, Freddy trying to save him. And Freddy is like, oh no, it's kind of like Darth Vader, like, oh, the dark side, come to the dark side. Like, that's kind of how it is. That's that battle, right? And it's posed very similar in like, you have the good side and you have the dark side. And it's like, which one are you going to choose? And the dark side is currently destroying you, but the good side is the one where you want to stay on. And in this case, the good side is straight and the dark side is gay. And Lisa is just like, I love you, Jesse. And Jesse's like, I love you too. And it's like, okay, he's, they, they've defeated Freddy because you've, you are, you know, sexually regressing and, you're denying your homosexuality and now you're saved but no you're not because you're still having the same dreams jesse you still think you're going to hell so no nobody is saved i hated it i hate those last 30 minutes and i think that there should be you know how films have uncut versions where it's like you see the director's cut or you see the like the movie in its entirety the way that it was originally made we should have a cut version like a and not even like you have yeah you have your director's cut but we need like a fan cut of the movie 
where the last 30 minutes just do not exist. Uh, the last 30 minutes ends um, somewhere where it makes sense, but just not the way that it actually ended, the way that David Chaskin wanted it to end. Because like he said, it was supposed to be homophobic anyways. And then my last dislike that I have is the introduction of Nancy's diary. I felt like this didn't make sense because Nancy, at least to my knowledge, Nancy never wrote in a diary in the first one. And so it just seemed like one of those things that were, it was introduced simply for the plot. Um, and it feels like it came out of nowhere. And also the way that she talks about Freddie and Glenn seems so unlike Nancy because she was a virgin and very adamant about that. So it just kind of, uh, it didn't sit right with me. It's so clear that, like, that's exact. it's a plot device. It was made so obvious, and I think those moments are poor writing, and I'm not just saying that because David Chaskin is public enemy number one. I'm saying that from a place of, like, a writing perspective, like, and a reader's perspective. Like, if you're gonna, if you have something simply for the plot, you have to find a way to thread it through the narrative and the entirety of the story especially if you're continuing a story that wasn't even yours to begin with like you know what I'm saying it's just like you yeah yeah uh David Chaskin really thought he was doing something a homophobic and a bad writer that's crazy anyways those are my only dislikes my only likes um I do hope you enjoyed this conversation and discussion I loved I loved rewatching this movie and watching it with the perspective of like the queer coding to this movie because it, you know when I would watch it before I I think there was always a part of me that recognized that something wasn't right you know like yeah you have this love interest but she doesn't really feel like a love interest um, it's like you have this best friend who you seem to like way more than the love interest. And so I think my younger brain picked up on things like that, but I wasn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to be like, that is gay, you know? And I also did have a crush on Lisa every time I watched it. So <laughs> there was that too. But I, yeah, I really, I love this movie. If you have not seen it and you're still listening, um, I do think you should watch it because it's a fun movie. I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I've always loved the franchise. I think Freddy Krueger is one of my favorite uh, horror icons because he's just so sassy. Like, he's just such a queen, you know? <laughs> I love Freddy. I just love the whole concept. I, I think that Freddy is one of the scarier horror villains because your dreams like you literally cannot escape your dreams you can try to you can try to evade sleeping all you want but at some point you're gonna get caught lacking and then you're gonna be caught up in a dream and you, and then you start questioning your reality and I think questioning your reality is one of the scariest things ever because to not have control of of your reality enough to be like this is fake yeah, that's scary. I would never want to have to experience that. I did rate this movie a three and a half stars on Letterboxd. 
of course yeah i did say it was my favorite and i love it but it's not five stars worthy i'm sorry that spot is reserved for twilight just kidding oh i did rate zombie land of five stars too and that yeah that's well deserved um i almost kind of want to make a list of all the movies i've rated of five stars just to be like this is the this is the top tier list you know i love making lists on letterbox it's so fun and i just make them for anything like i currently have one for all pg-13 horror uh, because I had somebody, one of y'all, um, in my DMs telling me that they've never seen a PG-13 movie that's good. Well, no, no, no. They didn't say that. They said that they're one of those people that believe that a PG-13 horror movie is not a good movie. And I was like, you're wrong. And now I'm going to make content solely based off of this conversation to prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm going to publicize this conversation to prove you wrong. And that's that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'm preparing that list. And it's public, so if you want to, you can see the, the list I'm currently curating. Um, but I have a queer horror list. I have uh, a black horror list. I have a list of, like, movies that I absolutely love and if Letterboxd allowed us to list more than four top movies, these would all be it. Um, that's a great list. <laughs> yeah, I just love, I have so many random lists in here. So, anywho, yeah, check those out if you want. And maybe I will make make a list based off of all my top, like my, my five-starred movies. Because I don't know, it's interesting. I don't really have a rubric on how I rate a movie. Like, I think if I can pinpoint obvious things that are wrong with it, it's not a five stars. But at the same time, I, like, the intention of why the movie was made and, like, the goal for the audience perception also has a thing. It, like, also plays a role in it because... Like Twilight, for example, the book, I read the first Twilight. I read it after I watched the movie, which some people have a problem with. I do not care. Um, like, I feel like the adaptation to screen was a good one. Yeah, maybe there were a few things left out, but as I'm reading it, it's like I can pinpoint every single, every single chapter, I can match it with a scene in the movie. I can match the characters, I can hear their voices in the lines because the lines were almost exactly the way that they were in the movies. Like, so I love it and I love just like, Twilight is just, it's not just a movie, okay? It's a lifestyle, it's an experience. And like Coraline, I've rated, I rate Coraline five stars because I love that movie. There is nothing wrong with that movie and the fact that it's claymation makes it even better. I just think every movie is different. You can't you can't assign the same rubric to every single movie because every single movie is going to be perceived differently. I don't know why I'm going on such a long tangent about this either. Like that's where I'm going to stop because I don't know how I got this far and this deep into this conversation. Anyways, um if you do want to see my ratings for Nightmare on Elm Street or any other movies, or you want to see my lists on Letterboxd, you can find that at Avery C-O-F. 
Um, also make sure you're staying up to date on social media, especially TikTok. I've post so much fun stuff on TikTok. Um, and that's at your horror podcast because this is your horror podcast, the podcast you come to for all your horror needs. While this episode marks the last episode of Pride Month, it the gay don't stop. Okay, the gay does not stop. I'm really excited for next month. It is the last month of season four of the podcast. Um, and then I will be gone for a month. But that does not mean that I'm not, I'm just going to fall off the face of the earth. I still post content. I like to say, I honestly, I think I post more content when I'm like on my break, particularly TikTok. TikTok is the easiest um, for me, but yeah, I mean, follow me anywhere, anywhere, you know, and interact with me. Tell me how you like this episode. Tell me how you like any of my other episodes on my social media. My DMs are open. You can also, um, there's a Q&A portion if you're listening on Spotify underneath this episode, which you can tell me how you liked this episode. Um, you can tell me if you want to see anything else from any of my, you know, from any future episodes. And yeah, if you're listening to this and you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can click the guest form link in the show notes below and uh, sign up. Tell me what book or movie you would like to cover and we can get that thing rolling. Happy Pride, you all. I hope you you finish this month off with a bang and uh, thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you next episode. Bye. Black cinema, sister soldier. Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit.